At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 525th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is seeking climate change solutions through sustainable farming investments. We're talking with David Chan about regenerative agriculture. David is the co-founder and COO of Farm Together. He has spent several years working in the organic agriculture value chain. Before forming Farm Together, David was a senior private equity associate at Amera Capital Management, where he worked closely with one of the fund's portfolio companies having a focus on supply chains in sustainable agriculture and serving the U.S. grains market. David also worked with SLM Partners, PGIM Ag Equity Investments, and was a finalist in Patagonia's first case competition on scaling regenerative agriculture. Welcome to the show today, David. Are you ready to rock? Yeah, Greg, let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely. So I grew up in the Hudson Valley in New York State. I grew up around apple orchards and ag was always in my backyard. I'd never expected to end up building a career here. I've always been interested in meteorology and climate, grew up with blizzards, tornadoes, you name it. And so that led me to study atmospheric science and climate at Cornell University. Oh, nice. (laughs) While I was at Cornell, I, and by the way, the plan was get a PhD and and save the world from climate change through academia. While I was there, I realized we already knew so much about climate change and great research had already been written. What we were missing were implementers, folks taking those ideas, those warnings and building solutions to combat them. And so my path deviated towards one where I found myself asking, what are other functional ways of taking what we know and building solutions? So I found finance and business to be an incredibly powerful tool towards doing that. And so my path veered from science and research to investing and and finance. My first job out of college was at a bank uh, called Barclays Capital, and I was able to build a core skill set there. I then joined a startup company in the ag data space called Grow Intelligence as an early employee and helped build the business development team there before going to business school. And then I used my MBA experience at Harvard to really combine all these experiences and start to venture out into a a career being an agricultural investor. Um, So that's really how I landed here was by virtue of, uh, of a rooted long passion in studying climate. Nice. And so how do you explain to people exactly what it is you do before you came to Farm Together and then as Farm Together? What is it that you do? Certainly. So I I help 
people invest in agriculture. So a statistic that really stood out to me, and it was something we thought about a lot at, at my prior organization, AmeriCapital, was the distribution of private investment across different sectors. And so agriculture is generally 10% global GDP, 1% of private investment. Energy, on the other hand, is 10% private investment and 1% of global GDP. Interesting. Uh, and so I always wondered, and, and don't get me wrong, energy is an incredibly important industry as well, but I would argue, you know, why is there such a difference? Why, why is there this parity between ag and energy? And so, I, you know, I firmly believe this is an underinvested industry. And it, as an asset class, farmland real estate, I would argue, is one of the most stable asset classes out there that's available for investors. You uh, think? It's another it's another flavor of real estate. Uh, and, at, you know, at first pass, I think it can be confusing for folks and, and investors think, oh, am I, you know, do I need to learn how to farm? There's a lot, a lot of education that goes around it. But once you start to get your head around it, you realize it's, it's just another form of real estate and an incredibly important one and one that shapes our society and one that's important to all of our well-beings. And so from not only a financial perspective, but from a social perspective as well, I just think access into this incredible asset class needs to be improved. And so that's really what led me to co-found Farm Together and build investment products that can be accessed by retail investors, not just large endowments and institutions. Mm -hmm. So when when you say investing in agriculture land, what is that? Let's start there. Sure. So investing in agricultural land would be owning an equity stake of a farm. So the same way you can own a house mm -hmm. via a mortgage or you know, maybe you paid your mortgage off and so you own, you own the whole house or you can own a franchise or you can own a rental property and lease it out to a tenant. You can do that same structure in farmland. You can lease a farm to an operator who does the farming and pays you rent and you're getting two income. You're basically getting two return streams. You're receiving annual rent. And you're also going to enjoy the underlying appreciation of the land itself. Mm -hmm. And land land is tied closely with inflation. It's a great inflation hedge. It's been very resisted in past recessions. It, it's a you know it's a real asset. It's a tangible asset that doesn't go away. It's not intangible. It's not invisible. It's not a you know a, a cloud based solution that right. doesn't really exist. It will always be there, and we are not making any more of it. So <laughs> yeah. for those reasons. You know, we think it's it's a really interesting alternative for investors who understand the benefits of having real estate investments. So, do I need a hundred thousand dollars to invest with you, or what? It, what does that platform look like? If I, you know, if I had a thousand dollars and came to you, is that something that that I could invest with you? So today we are serving the accredited investor community, which means that there are some qualifications as an investor that you would need to meet in order to invest in our current offerings. Mm -hmm. uh, and we list those all on our website. But you know, generally the minimum investment size for our deals range between, uh, I'd say, a minimum of $25,000 to $50,000. We hope over time that we are able to continue to bring those minimums down. But for context, you know, previously, prior to the advent of crowdfunding, if you wanted to open a separately managed account at one of the large institutional farmland funds, you know, I know a couple have minimums in the ballpark of a hundred million dollars. And so while wow. I don't want to be I don't want to be naive, fifty thousand dollars is still a good a good amount of capital. It's significantly less than what has been the barrier in the past. And so that's what we're working on now and 
stay tuned for for new products. We hope to continue to uh, expand that frontier and and make the asset class more accessible. Nice. And and how is the success of Farm Together working? How you know how what kind of positive or negative feedback have you been getting from people? And received a lot of positive feedback from investors in the content that we produce and the way that we explain the asset class. And I think investors appreciate just having the opportunity to take the time to learn and become comfortable. And and we certainly understand that. You know, personally, I would not invest in something that I didn't understand. And so we start there. We need to we need to make this simple enough for folks to understand. We try to do that via a variety of media. We write thought pieces says white papers we write we manage an active blog um, we're active on social media Twitter uh, Instagram Facebook and we also produce webinars on all topics but especially related to specific offerings anytime we have a new offering we will always have at least one webinar we usually have two or three uh, where we discuss the offering walk through the merits walk through the risks and take time to hi- to address any questions that our listeners may have on the offering and so I think you know, one major piece of positive feedback has been that our our, use, our clients really appreciate that we take the time to develop all of this content for them. You know, and I think I'm trying to think if we received any negative feedback. You know, sometimes I think we've come across a few folks who I think misunderstand what we're trying to do, and so uh-huh. we've been accused. You know, we've been accused by some folks of, of taking advantage of farming families, or you know, making a making it harder for a farming family to continue to survive under the same lifestyle they've had. That's simply not true. Yeah. Um, what we're, do- what we're doing on, on the, on the purchase side, where when we find a farm that we really like, that we think would be a great property for our clients, we, pr- we can provide flexible capital solutions for the sellers At, to date. They may not. They may not have even come across these options because, you know, generally speaking, ag finance has been pretty vanilla, and there hasn't been much creativity behind structured sales. And so, one example of this is, you know, we're speaking with a family in Connecticut that has owned that has is operating a farm that has been owned in that family since I believe 1902. Wow! And the family really, the the sibling really does not want to let the farm go, but. The other owners um, that are also family members are thinking about estate planning. And so there's some pressure on, you know, what's going to happen to this to this wonderful historic farm. And so something that we can do, a solution that we could bring to the table in this situation is that we can structure a fundraise where we essentially syndicate out the portion of the farm or however much of the value of the farm that they're looking to liquidate the the heirs who want to get out of the farming business. And we can leave the sibling who is passionate about the farm and wants to continue farming as a a residual owner. So they will continue to own a a piece of that farm. And we can also work with them to, to make sure that they can continue operations as well. And so here's a solution that's now being offered where everybody wins. Folks who are looking to leave the farm get out. Folks who are looking to continue the farm can stay in. And rather than lose a farm and see another shopping mall set up, Right. or apartment building built in a beautiful area on the Long Island Sound in historic Connecticut, we'll retain a farm that's been there since 1902. So, you know, I think folks just don't understand, you know, what, what our motivations are. And, and we're just as much about wanting to help farmers uh, and farming families looking to figure out estate planning and, and how they're going to move forward with the next generation of their land as we are in serving our clients. Yeah. Well, and that's a brilliant solution, the one you just proposed. Uh, it sounds to me like you're giving farming families an opportunity to 
be able to cash out to a certain extent of a farm, but not shut the farm down. Absolutely. And, you know, and the other thing is these having a, owning a farm for so long and managing it for decades, it's, it's an emotional oh, asset. Yeah, it's it, it's everything. I mean, the, these folks put their blood, sweat and tears into this piece of land. And the last thing they want to see is is an apartment building to go up there. And so, you know, the, it's it's honestly a very emotionally charged discussion because Real estate developers will flock. Of course, these are prime targets for certain developers. They'll right. flock to these properties, and you know they'll they'll give a very compelling bids and off, you know very compelling offers to um, the sellers. And you know I could understand to after a while, you know if if you're trying to figure this out for a couple of years and no one's coming through and you can't figure out, you can't figure out how to continue it as a farm, but you have three offers on the table, all very promising. It's it's difficult. It's difficult to justify to the other owners why, you know, why to hold out, why to keep staying patient and why is it important to maintain this historic piece of land as a farm. And so we we empathize with that greatly. And, and you know, a, a big, big part of Farm Together's thesis and, and why we exist, you know, we just think. And we don't. I, I would say it's even more than think. We we have confidence in this because it comes from from experts of U.S. Act. The amount of land that's going to transfer in the next twenty years is astonishing. At at a minimum, experts are predicting that fifty percent of all U.S. farmland is going to trade hands in the next twenty years alone. Trade so that's hands. roughly meaning tr- trade ownership. Yeah, and how much there's of, going to be a transaction? Yeah, and how much do we know? How much of that is going to be shifted away from ag land? So, so that's that's impossible to know. But if there is not market infrastructure in place to support these transactions, mm-hmm. I would venture to say it would be a higher number versus a lower number. Yeah. And so we 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 need more. You know, that's why we exist. We need we need farm together, and we need others to assist both the sales and purchases of these farms in order to ensure that they stay farms. The U.S. has lost twice the size of the state of Massachusetts in farmland over the past two decades. Wow. Well, that's, and so that's a problem because we all need to eat. Absolutely, it's it's incredibly important for our well-being. It's important for our trade relationships with other countries. It's important for our national security during wartime. Mm-hmm. There there are big macro reasons why a country wants to be self-sufficient in food production, and I would argue that's why U.S. farm subsidies are so strong. Um, this is a heavily subsidized industry by the U.S. government. I think I think that will never go away, no matter if someone wearing red or blue is in the Oval Office. It's just critically important yep. strategically to the U.S. to maintain its its status as a leading producer of agricultural products. Yeah. Wow. This is an amazing conversation. And I want to shift it a little bit to talking about organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture. And I have a few questions for you before we actually shift into our other questions. And in your bio, you talked about an organic agriculture value chain. Can you tell everybody what that is? That's really important. The organic certification that the USDA has created is a signal to to consumers, you and me, every time we go to a grocery store and we want to support organic agriculture. That certification is based on a number of principles that need to be followed throughout not only the production process, but also the processing of the actual agricultural good. And this is something that I think most consumers are not aware of. I was not aware of until I actually began working with this portfolio company, Pipeline Foods, during my tenure at AmeriCapital Management. And so, you know, I I guess to, to put a little bit more color behind this, imagine the situation where you're a farmer, you go through 
farming in a conventional manner, you want to transition to organic. First off, it's at minimum a three-year process to transition to organic. Your yields are going to go down through that period and you're not able to serve, you're not able to put an organic label on any of your production. And so you're not seeing any price premiums there. So first off, it's just from a rational economics perspective, it's a tough decision to make. But let's say you move forward with it. Fast forward three years, let's say you, you now are blessed with the certification and you sell, you look to sell your wheat or corn or soy for processing, perhaps by a pasta company or a cereal company. If the elevator or the processor that you are looking to sell to does not have, is not an organic certified elevator, if your grain touches a conventional elevator, it immediately loses its organic certification. Uh, that is no longer that is no longer organic product, and so the price premium disappears, and all of those costs and all of that time that went into the arduous transition process was for none. The value chain is making sure that you have a organic certified pathway from basically the farm to the grocery store. Absolutely, uh, and. It's having the midstream assets, be it an elevator or a hauler or whatever it may be, to ensure that that organic, that what whatever the raw material is that was farmed and certified to be farmed in an organic manner stays under the organic regulations and can reach the shelf of the grocery store with an organic label. Nice. And we've maybe touched a little bit on regenerative agriculture, but let's dig into that. What is regenerative agriculture? I'd say there's no uniform answer. There, there are a number of different think tanks and organizations that are have done extensive research on regenerative ag, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll preface it with there's no one standard definition, but there is. I'd say that there is a consensus on what the concept is. At the end of the day, regenerative organic agriculture. The name regenerative is really important here. It means you're building. You're building topsoil, you're building soil health each time you farm. You are not depleting the soil of nutrients. You are not leaving the soil, you know, absent of key micronutrients by, you know, a number of different industrial processes that we've seen emerge over time. You are using practices like cover cropping, no-till, crop rotations. You're promoting biodiversity um, to the extent that there could be a, a grass-fed or pasture-fed or pasture-raised cattle. You're employing that. You you are considering soil health, animal welfare, and social fairness across the production spectrum. And at the end of the day, you are improving the health of the topsoil. And subsequently, what we are learning is you can also sequester carbon from the atmosphere by farming this way. And so this is the closest thing that I've found to a carbon sucking machine. And there's a lot of people out there that agree with you on that. Have you read Marie, Marie Rodale's book? Yeah. So the, the Rodale Institute is, is one of those leading organizations that has been studying this field. I'm, I, may be, I may be incorrect on the exact date, but I believe since the 1980s. So this is, this is not a new concept. It's just now taking shape and, and starting to be lobbied and championed by both consumers and CPG companies. But yes, that's, it's an excellent book. And the Rodale Institute is certainly one of the leading uh, the thought leaders on regenerative organic agriculture and actually ha- recently is issuing a new certification called the Regenerative Organic Certification, which will be a signal to consumers that the food that they are buying was farmed under these practices and is having this positive impact on our soil and on our environment. And so it's really exciting to see that come to fruition because we're starting to see the market develop just as yeah. we 
witnessed the organic market develop, you know, a decade or a little more ago. Wow. So you participated in Patagonia's case competition on scaling regenerative agriculture. That sounds fascinating. Tell me more about that. Absolutely. So this MBA case competition or graduate student level uh, case competition that was hosted by Patagonia. It's hosted every year and the theme changes. But when I was a first year MBA student, the theme was scaling regenerative agriculture. And so we assembled a team from Harvard and worked really hard on, on a proposed solution, which was essentially creating a, a loan or favorable financing to help farmers during the costly transition process that we just spoke about earlier, which, by the way, now Rabobank, in partnership with Pipeline Foods, just put together this concept of, of a transitional financing. So it's really wow. exciting to see this all coming together. But in any event, we were named a finalist. We were able to travel to University of California at Berkeley and present to Patagonia's senior management. And so Rose Mercario, the CEO of Patagonia, was 10 feet in front of us listening to our idea on how we can use transitional labeling and, and favorable financing to try to incentivize more farmers to make the transition towards regenerative and organic ag. And it was just, for me, it was an incredibly important experience because I just was not aware of all of the promise and all the possibility that regenerative could hold. And it really inspired me to take the career path that I am now on and try to use finance as a way to accelerate more investment and more transition towards this manner of farming. Well, and Patagonia has really dove really deep into this regenerative ag, and they're they're supporting farmers to go that direction, are they not? They absolutely are. So Patagonia has been truly a trailblazer in regenerative ag. They opened a, a division called Patagonia Provisions, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a food label, and they they make a, a number of different foods, perfect foods for you know for those who enjoy the outdoors and, and need something convenient. So they have protein bars and soups and things like that, and all of it is is regeneratively produced. And not only, you know, not only is Patagonia, I'd say the biggest thing that any CPG company can do is establish a value chain and create products for consumers. So I think that that alone, by having Patagonia provisions and, and sourcing these regener- regeneratively farmed products, that goes such a long way in moving the needle. But beyond that, they also established a venture capital fund called Tin Shed Ventures, and they invest in startups that are developing technologies to help quantify the amount of carbon that's being sequestered through the regenerative process and and ultimately accelerate our understanding of regenerative ag. So, you know, it really starts with the leadership. Yvonne Chouinard is is just truly just a, a leader who understands the responsibility that he and other senior executives have to improve our our odds at being able to maintain our environment. And and he and Rose and and the entire leadership team are, are doing a, just a tremendous job in their work and pushing the industry forward, but also forcing competitors to go to the whiteboard and say, you know, what can we do? <laughs> I think that's an important side effect of it. And there was also something called Terratone that you participated in. Tell me that. Yes. So we are very excited about the Terratone Challenge at Farm Together. So the Terratone Challenge is a, a global challenge that it's an inaugural and it's being hosted by Indigo Ag. And The challenge basically is how do we use regenerative agriculture to sequester 1 trillion tons of carbon from the atmosphere? And 
Terraton and Indigo have developed a really powerful network of growers who are either farming regeneratively or want to learn how to farm regeneratively and are looking to you know essentially create this ecosystem they're also they are also developing a carbon market where they are going to be offering growers who do grow under regenerative conditions an additional financial incentive per acre and then they are taking the responsibility of forming uh, and being able to quantify the carbon credit that's created through that farming uh-huh. and sell it to regulated entities like airline companies and energy companies. So it's incredible. It's an incredible opportunity and it's comprised of over 30 companies, I think 260 or so applied, and they were able to narrow the list down to 30 or 35. Farm Together is lucky enough to be one of those semifinalists. And so where they see promise and what we can do is there are a number of investors impact investors and mission-oriented investors who are eager to, you know, invest capital and make this happen. They just don't have a way to do so today. There are few investment products that are out there that achieve these goals. And so Indigo and Terraton see us as the capital solution, the marketplace solution towards being able to finance this transition to regenerative agriculture. And we're lucky to be part of this wonderful cohort with other companies that are going to help us quantify the amount of carbon that's sequestered and and really report all of the great positive impact that's being done and achieved through this method of farming. Wow. You can find, I just looked them up real quick. You can find them at indigoag.com. Definitely want to go check that out. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. So there's uh, a few examples to, to go through, but I'll share one that comes, this one always seems to come to mind. So I shared earlier that I studied atmospheric science in college, uh-huh. and part of our requirements, our course requirements for that degree program was taking physics. And so... Oh. Um, <laughs> I know it's it's very scary. I still have scars. And I was in electricity and magnetism, which was the second semester of physics. And it was truly a foreign language to me. I could not I could not figure this subject out no matter how much I tried. And I remember we have we have this big event at Cornell called Slope Day. It's it, it's a big concert. And, you know, usually people are out having fun. I was in my physics professor's uh, office during office hours trying to figure out how I could pass this class. And this professor shared with me this anecdote on how he was taking an English class in college and received, I think, a D or C or something like that, but, you know, was in danger of failing and had the same conversation that I was having with him with his English professor. And the English professor said to him, you know, English isn't for everyone. It seems like you you do really well in in STEM. So, you know, keep keep going down the physics route and you'll be fine. And he finished that story and said to me, you know, I think physics is is your English. (laughs) That was very uh, uncomforting, to be truthful. But, you know, in any event, um, there was no way around around this. I, I needed to I needed to get through this class. And and so I, you know, I was lucky enough. I actually had a great friend who helped me study friend at the time she is now my wife so um things nice that friendship that friendship progressed nicely but she helped me study as much as she could and you know i i was able to just squeak by but you know i 
I just remember being so humbled in that class. And, you know, I've never, I've never dealt with a subject before where no matter how much time I put in, just nothing was sinking. And so um, I often think back to, to that experience of how challenging it was. And, you know, when I'm looking to get through a situation, I just think if I could get through electricity and magnetism, I can get through this. There you go. <laughs> no kidding. And your biggest success? Truly following what I'm passionate about and building a career in this very niche area where, you know, it, it's not like there are, there are a million opportunities everywhere. And, um, you know, we, we had to start a company in order to do this, um, but it's something that we, we believe very much in. And anyone who's listening who is a founder or has ever been part of an entrepreneurial venture, you know, un- understands that every day is a roller coaster and, you know, you, you get knocked down a few times and often and you need to get right back up. And so I think my biggest success is, is taking a leap of faith and starting Farm Together and more broadly, just continuing to follow my passion and being devoted to a career in agriculture. Nice. And what drives you? You know, it really goes back to uh, what I shared earlier. It's uh, I firmly believe that this industry holds the most promise towards providing the world with a solution to climate change. I think regenerative organic agriculture is a, a, a very big piece of that. I think the way we use our land, the food that we as a society decide to eat, the quantities that we decide to eat, all have profound impacts on our society and our environment. And so being at the very top of that value chain, being at the farm gate level where it all begins, Mm -hmm. there's just tremendous, tremendous change that that can happen for the good there. And so, you know, for me, it's really rooted in this passion of, of just understanding that climate change is not something to believe in. It's it's a scientific phenomenon that's real and it's happening every single day at a faster pace than it was happening yesterday. And I have to do my small part in helping us have a shot at providing our children and our children's children with an environment that's as favorable, favorable as the one that we have all grown up in. Amen to that. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I think the book that I would recommend is one that I actually read for the first time in high school, but I've read many times since. And it, it is Night by Elie Wiesel. It is a book of a 25-year-old man uh, survived concentration camps in World War II. It's a, it's a terribly sobering and difficult book to read. However, you know, for me, it, it's important for a number of, of reasons. One, I think resilience is, is just an incredible skill that everyone should strive to build and, and continue building. And you know, this author... I don't think there's any comparable example of resilience to being able to to get through that unimaginable experience and then mm-hmm. continue to live such a meaningful and purposeful life. And it's, instead of having bitter and rage, you know, continuing to see the promise and the good in humans. And so I think, you know, resiliency is something that that book taught me. And I would say the other thing that that book taught me is, you know, it unfortunately, if if people are not held accountable for their actions, we now have an idea of how low societies can go. You think? <laughs> it's, it, you know, we, times may seem crazy now. And, you know, and there's a, a number of reasons why I think that may be the case. But, you know, all things being said, the world's in pretty good shape right now, if you compare it to back then. Yeah, um, that's the case. And, you know, it's it's sobering. But, you know, it, to, to think that that could never happen again, is, it's, it's just naive. And so I think, you know, for someone who did not have the, the experience of being alive during that time, or being close to that time, to have a, a real understanding, a deep understanding of it, I think it's important to read literature that reminds us of, of 
where we have been as humans and as a society. Right. And the name of the book again? Night by Ellie Wiesel. Perfect. Thank you. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Going off the theme of, of my book recommendation is to never give up and to be resilient. I'd say it's always darkest before the dawn. And so resiliency is something that has served me very well through my career and my personal life. And so I would recommend everyone just do their best to put things into perspective. And, you know, one thing I do to actually an actionable thing that I try to do that helps me, I think, become more resilient. Um, You can't, of course, you can't just manufacture challenge. But one thing that you can do, I have a meeting with myself, and it might sound crazy, but you know, I try, I shoot for once a week, sometimes that's once every two weeks, but I will literally look in the mirror and, and go through, you know, a checklist of what's going on. Is this, is this what I envision doing this week? Is this what I'm envisioning doing this quarter, this year? Am I on the right path still? Do I need to make any changes? Am I, am I dealing with the challenges that I have on, on my plate right now in the best way? Am I, you know, am I continuing to take care of my physical health? Am I continuing to take care of my mental health? I think it's really important for, for leaders and for everyone to just, you know, truly have a meeting with yourself and just ask yourself, you know, is everything on schedule? (laughs) Is everything going well? And if not, address it. And I think that builds resiliency because you're able to, you know, instead of letting problems snowball into something that's seemingly insurmountable, you deal with them as, as they come up. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that and joining us on the show today, David. Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? Sure. I'd love for any interested listeners to reach out. So I, I'm happy to share my email. My email is david at farmtogether.com. I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Dave Ed Chan. So D-A-V-E-E-D. C-H-A-N, and also happy to connect on LinkedIn. So anywhere you want to find me on on those platforms, please do. Perfect. And your website is? www.farmtogether.com. Excellent. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash farm together. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.